welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. So welcome to the Jolly Podcast. This week we are joined by Jill Long, and she has been working in diversity, equity, and inclusion for a while now. And we are excited to have a conversation about you, your journey, and the impact that you are creating on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I normally start out just kind of asking people about themselves and their journey. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you got to this place? Absolutely. I suppose like everyone who works in diversity, equity, inclusion, it's sort of an interesting path. It wasn't particularly linear, but I am, I am a recovering lawyer. So I practiced law for about 20 years. And towards the end of my time as a lawyer, I got a chance to do a fellowship program through the Leadership Council for Legal Diversity, which is this big national organization that's really aimed at increasing diversity in the legal profession. And it really changed my life, frankly. It gave me this enormous year to really look at what diversity issues were specific in the legal industry and connect them to my own experience and also very powerfully to be surrounded by 175 other lawyers from all over the country, from various legal departments at companies and law firms that were unbelievable. They were, I felt such imposter syndrome walking into that room because I was like, wow, these are impressive people. Um, I'm just a partner at a, at a mid-sized regional law firm. You know, it felt very intimidating, but as I got to know everyone, I was really inspired by just seeing the power of my class and also the power of the the power of the program because the program really gave me this opportunity to think about my career a little bit differently and it was the first time I thought outside of being a lawyer and I could see the impact that people were making on the profession that weren't necessarily practicing law so I finished that program year and I approached my then managing partner of my firm and said hey what do you think if I were to do lead diversity for the firm in some sort of professional capacity instead of just you know most law firms have a diversity committee and everyone volunteers time and that's wonderful But like any volunteer job, it comes after paying client work. And so there just isn't enough resources to like move a lot of things forward. Um, And a huge credit to the firm, like they said, yes. And we ended up designing this new position. So I became the firm's first ever director of professional development and diversity. So I wore both of those hats. I still practice law, which is sort of crazy in retrospect. So I had like three full-time jobs, (laughs) but I was so excited and it was it was the first time in my career, like everything was so creative and there was such meaning behind it. And it was, so that was my step into doing this work was that, that journey. Well, and I think in the, in the area of law, there is definitely a focus on diversity and inclusion because there is such a lack of it yes. um, in the, in the, in the profession, right? <laughs> Absolutely. The legal profession is the least diverse profession. So they have struggled more than doctors and accountants and engineers. And they have been struggling 
for a long time, there's been a lot of diversity committees around for a long time. You know, firms have had people in these kind of roles for a long time. And frankly, not much has changed. If you look at women, we've been graduating at least 50% classes of women and men in law school for a long time, I mean, decades now. Um, and yet we are on pace for gender equity at top positions in the law in 2081 which I would call not on pace. You know, there's just, there's been no movement. So it's, things are very stuck and it's super complicated and hard. So it's a good, it's a wonderful place to get to work because it's, there's so much work to do and it's so complicated. Um, And also, you know, even though I don't practice law anymore, I love lawyers. I was a lawyer. I think lawyers, as much as a bad rap as they get sometimes, it's a helping profession. It's a profession about helping people and clients and there's a lot of goodwill and there's a lot of pressure. So it's really nice to be able to work with people in that space. It means a lot to me. Yeah. I have spent a lot of time with lawyers doing some of the work that I've done in the past and they are, they are phenomenal. They do get a bad rap, but they, they are do. phenomenal. I think one of the things though, that's really interesting that you mentioned is the fact that there's so many people that volunteer to do yeah. a lot of this work. And I know there's a lot of people that get very little credit for all the work that they do in the space. And certainly knowing that there has been committees that have been formed and, you know, everybody wants to make a difference. But are there things that you have seen that people embrace now that are kind of more best practices in the area? I think it's great that you actually went to your your own constituency and said, I think I need to have this as my full-time job. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't necessarily have that. And we, we see a lot of the diversity employees, their, their, their yeah. departments are just so small. They're so small. It's such an under-resourced area within organizations. I mean, law firms and I also work with, you know, lots of companies and other professional service providers and generally it's under-resourced, but it's, the volunteer aspect is really complicated. And unfortunately, I think what it does a lot is it overburdens, especially, you know, people of color or people who identify as diverse in some way, um, who tend to be the ones to raise their hands, who have a lot of passion, a lot of personal experience around the issues. And then they volunteer on a committee. They, they're told it's important, but they don't get credit for it and whatever credit means. You know, in a law firm system, you don't usually get billable hour credit for being on a committee like that. So you spend all this time and it impacts your productivity and you get some, you know, accolades sometimes, but it's not, it's out of balance. I think it's out of balance with real change. So, you know, one best practice that is out there is to give people actual credit and whatever it means within an organization for the time they spend. So it becomes at least part of their paid work. Because we frankly know that we do what is most valuable and what is most valuable to organizations is what they pay for. So, you know, at the end of the day, if there isn't, if you're not paying for this work, then ultimately it's not really a priority as much as, I think that that's hard to face. And I think leadership has a hard time in saying, yeah, you're right. You know, if we won't pay for it, what does it really mean to us? But there's a balance in there. So one best practice is to give credit, you know, billable credit in a law firm setting. I think another best practice is to get away from 
siloing the work, you know, the committee will do it. Our diversity chair will do it. Our chief diversity officer who only has a staff of one or two will do it. So I've seen this so much and I think it's where a lot of problems occur is leadership says we care. We have the committee. We have the chief diversity officer. um, Now you go fix our problem. You, you know, you go do it and nothing will change, frankly, because it's, it's takes everyone to make change. And when leadership says, well, we care and you go do it, it's not enough to make real change. Yeah, that is so true. I think, you know, part of what people forget when they're in leadership, driving things down is that it's very challenging to take a look at yourself first as one of the people that will drive that change. Because I think in a lot of cases, people don't know what to do. They don't know what to do at all. And it's so hidden, right? You know, white supremacy culture, which lives in every organization, is very hidden. So, you know, it's contemplative work. It's hard to say to like a a board of directors at a company, like now it's time for your contemplative work because that feels outside of the way we think about business. But frankly, it's the most important thing because... If leaders don't step back and make space for being able to see more, to see how white supremacy culture exists in organizations, to see how bias is impacted, it has nothing to do with intent. Like these are all sorts of good people marching along, you know, their their daily lives trying to do good. But if you can't see the harm that's caused by perpetuating systems, you can't change them. So it's it's hard to make space for it, but I think that's the most best practice out there is for leadership, you know, top leadership of any organization to make space to do some of their own work, you know, with guidance, because you don't know what to do, but there are some things that can be done and then real change can happen. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that, you know, aside from that, that you talk to organizations about, especially, you know, specifically law firms, for example, I mean, how do they get started? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I think I think everyone, often people feel like they've started and they don't understand why things aren't changing. And so I think like taking a pause and recognizing, well, we did all these things. We had annual trainings and we have a committee and we have lunch and learns and that's not changing anything to just pause and acknowledge that because doubling down on those things will continue to not change things. So I, my favorite place of work is to work with leadership cohorts. So it might be a board of directors or a C-suite and do some of you know that contemplative work, um, which is really about increasing skills and awareness of those leaders. So there's a tool I love that I think is incredibly powerful for helping folks have that introspection. So it's called the Intercultural Development Inventory. And it is a intercultural competency assessment tool, essentially. So it's based on the intercultural development continuum. I feel like all of this space has um, so many long acronyms. So it's the IDI and the IDC. Um, But the IDC is so beautiful because it is a developmental look at improving intercultural competence. So it's it's not static. It says very much hey, you can get better at this. You can get better at understanding your own culture and conditioning. And you can get better at working with difference, working with people that are different than you in many different ways um, and developing positive attitudes. So you can come in and develop a cohort sort of model, maybe six or nine months of programming where you can use that IDI to assess where people are at in the beginning there's no bad place to start, even though that can feel uncomfortable. Um, working with lawyers, you know, lawyers like to get A's and they, they, they're very competitive. So 
you have to do a lot of important sort of intentional work to be like, I know it's a continuum and it looks like an A is at the end and then F is at the beginning, but you're not failing. We're just figuring out where you're at. There's no bad place to be. And then we can move from there. And that kind of work can be really powerful. People get so much out of it and then systems can start to change. I think like thinking about building blocks that way, like leadership work and then moving to systemic change within organizations, it's hard to do one without the other. Yeah, that's fabulous. So, and and does a lot of that work start with, you know, I mean, those surveys, are they like, you know, two hour surveys that they have to deal with or because, you know, pulling in the data from there and then actually Mm -hmm. translating it to something that's meaningful can be really challenging. It can. And, you know, there is a time commitment. I think that that's, there's a truth to that. But the assessment itself, so the IVI assessment is a 50-question online tool. It's an inventory, I should say inventory, not assessment. Um, So it doesn't take that long. You know, maybe it takes 20 minutes. And then there's an opportunity, some sort of retreat or workshop to learn the IDC, so to learn the continuum. And then after that, you can get your you can get your score as an organization or a cohort. So like the leadership team scores here on the continuum. And so we know the work to move to the next stage might look like this. Um, and then you can also get your individual score, which you could think of investing about 30 to 60 minutes with a qualified administrator from the IDI who can give you your personal results, which also gives you a plan of, okay, so this is where I am and now I can move from here. And that is, I say it so, it sounds so easy when I say it, but I recognize that it's really hard. You know, that's hard to make space for. It's hard to hear sometimes because we all, all humans tend to think we're a little further along than we are on anything. And one of the beautiful things about the IDI is it gives you two scores. It gives you your developmental score and your perceived score. It essentially tells you this is where you're at and this is where you think you're at. And so typically you think you're further along than you actually are. Yeah, we all want to say that we're better better than we <laughs> than right. we actually yeah. are. But I think that's kind of the reality of um you know, all of the work around when you start talking about inclusion and equity, mm-hmm. when we really start to break down where I personally may be failing or at least creating the awareness to know that I could do something better. Yeah. Well, and the I think inclusion and equity is frankly where it's all at. Diversity is so important. And I think of diversity as sort of who we are. And then inclusion and equity are how we treat each other and how people are given access to being able to thrive within any organization. And I will say in law firms in particular, and I see this a lot just in general, there's this focus on diversity. Like, let's fix our hiring or where do we find candidates and focus, focus, focus. And that's important. But if you do that and you don't do anything serious around inclusion and equity, well, you just have this revolving door. And that's what the data tells us. You know, there's just this revolving door. We can, you know, find people and bring them in and then they leave because it's a really horrible experience when there's no focus on inclusion and equity. Yeah, definitely. The retention aspect, I think, is significant. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, in companies that are looking to pull in additional representation, 
you know, a lot of times we forget about the people that are actually working there and understanding yes. what their experience is like. Mm-hmm. Um, you so know, true. you talk about the white supremacy culture mm-hmm. but, and, and it being kind of invisible, but to, to, to people of color, it's probably not invisible. Right. Well, and I, you know, that has been one of my huge learnings personally. So, you know, I identify as a straight cisgender white woman. And so that's the lens that I was born with and bring. And I've had a lot of learning to do, especially to understand the experiences of others, um, as we all do. But I think there's two things that come up for me when um, we talk about this. So one is the idea that I think, especially when I started doing diversity work, there almost felt like there was this competitive edge to like who belongs here, like how diverse are you? You know, how worthy are you of being in this conversation? And, you know, I felt very unsure about what my place was. And I actually had the opportunity through LCLD to be in a small lunch environment with Brad Smith, who is the general counsel and president of Microsoft. That was his title at the time. I think that might still be his title. He's an amazing man and he's very passionate about diversity. Um, And he is a straight white cisgender male from Appleton, Wisconsin. And to see him own that and and really, really with no qualifiers, just see his role as making change and doing this work, it really changed things for me. All of a sudden it's like, oh, I should do this too. We all have to do this. But it was an opening. And so I think that that's so important. I think people forget, like we all have to do this. When I was inside my law firm, I would often hear from straight white men who were in leadership roles like, oh, I shouldn't be on the committee or I shouldn't come to that. It's not for me. And so flipping the mindset, this is for this is for you. Like it's actually especially for all of us who are in leadership positions to be in this work. So that's long, slow work, but I think it's really, it's really important. Yeah, such an excellent point. Cause I do think that people think that for one type or of diverse population to get better that somebody else is getting worse. And that's not the case, right? It's not a zero sum game. No, Mm -hmm. definitely not. And we absolutely need everyone, as you said, like whether, no matter what your culture or gender Mm -hmm. or, you know, whether you're disabled or, you know, any of that. Yeah. Absolutely. It takes everyone. It will take everyone. The other thing that came up for me in thinking about how hidden things are, there's an amazing, it's like a white paper essentially on white supremacy culture and organizations. Maybe you've seen it before, but it's, when I read it, it felt like a gut punch in that I was like every law firm everywhere, every corporation everywhere holds all of these things as part of the important part of their business culture without understanding the tie to white supremacy culture. That can be a lot to hear. That can feel really, you know, just saying white supremacy culture can be really off-putting to some people. But, you know, it had things like urgency, diplomacy, um, an overemphasis on the written word, an underemphasis on, you know, connection and communication through storytelling or discussion and dialogue. And it just goes on and on. And it was such a moment of 
nobody ever thinks when we talk about those things within an organization, sense of urgency is a great one in law firms because there's such an emphasis on it for client service, but we never understand how it ties to white supremacy culture and how it ties to systemic racism and how it ties to these problems. So that takes a lot to unpack, but it's really a huge deal if you can. Well, it is some of the same things we still hear today in terms of representation, because I think in a lot of cases, as people are expanding their networks to say, you know, we need to pull in additional representation, that there's this urgency to fill a position, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like if you've never been there and now you're trying to get there, it's going to take longer. (laughs) It is. It should, right? And the... The urgency thing is so interesting to me because this should be a high priority, right? It should be really important. And there should be a sense of we can't wait. I do believe that. But when we fill it with urgency, we don't make the space to do the work well. So uncoupling priority and commitment from urgency, I think that is an incredible place of possibility and a a wonderful best practice for if leaders can see that difference. Um, That's why I love using the IDI too, because it's slow, you know, six or nine months of this work feels like too much to a lot of people. And I get that, but it's, there's no way around it. Like things don't happen really quickly. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. So then in terms of you mentioned things like lunch and learns and Mm -hmm. and kind of practices that people have, I think more about maybe creating awareness and education. As you dig into some of the work, are there things that you can translate that kind of immediately turn into forms of execution once that, you know, survey is done? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, now I know where I am. I know where the leadership is. Like, how do you translate that to executing on, on on a roadmap? You know, I think that the most important thing is to be custom about it, to do it, not to take something off the shelf, but to say, who are we and how do we move forward? The IDI is like my favorite thing because I think it's so powerful, but I do this with lots of organizations that aren't in a place to use the IDI. So, you know, you can use climate surveys or engagement surveys. You can do stakeholder interviews. I think if you, depending on the scale of the organization, right, it it all kind of has to fit, but some of the best things to do are just to do stakeholder interviews. Like I have learned so much, but I'm going to sit down with everyone on your board and just have a conversation about DEI with them. And I walk out of that process knowing a lot, like having a really good understanding of what makes sense for a roadmap. So to do some investment in where we're at, whether it's the IDI or working with a consultant on stakeholder interviews or an internal survey, so many ways to do it. And then to move into the roadmap of what's next. And I've seen a lot of different things work, but one of the themes within it, so a theme within a lunch and learn or an education series or a training, even though I don't love the phrase training, because I think it may, it lets people disconnect. Like, you know, when you go to a training, you can be a passive 
quiet, you're, you're the student that you were, you know, were you the student in the front with your hand up or were you the student in the back with your arms crossed? And that's probably right. It's something comes at you instead of you engaging in something. And when you go back to the fact that this is contemplative work, what we want to do is create space for people to think a little about themselves. So that would be the theme that I find as a best practice is to really make space for people to get a little content. So some exposure, some education, but then for there to be space to wrestle with it a little, you know, have some discussion with peers. Um, there's some wonderful exercises you can do where you're just writing down answers to questions, you know, journaling um, as not corporate-y as that sounds, like journaling is an incredibly powerful practice to develop awareness. So I think in this time of COVID, interestingly, surprisingly to me, because I've always been someone who's like, the work is better in person. We have to be in person. And some things are really wonderful in person. But Zoom has worked really well for bringing larger groups together and doing this work. You set up some content, you maybe expose someone to some information about privilege they didn't have before, right? Privilege is a really meaty area. You can talk about that idea that it's not a zero-sum game, that it's really just about everyone starting at the same place. That can be really new for people. That can feel very challenging to identity. But where the magic happens is then you give them two or three discussion questions or an exercise and you send them off into breakout rooms. So they're with two or three colleagues and they have permission to talk about this in a structured way. And that is where you learn something about yourself when you answer things out loud and you learn so much from your trusted colleague and learning about their experience. It's way less about what I say and way more about the container and what it allows other people to explore for themselves. Well, and I think that is part of the challenge, though, because I think a lot of times when people come to work, they're not really thinking they have to expose all themselves that way. I agree. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it, it's become a little bit different, um, I think, especially in times of COVID, because everybody, there's so many people, not everybody, but a lot right. of people are working from home um, or in some cases, you know, they've, they've brought their home to work, if you will, right. um, because all of a sudden, you know, everybody from work is in their house and, you know, whether they have a virtual background or not, or, you know, people coming in and out, they're trying to right. deal with kids, you know, mm -hmm. that are in school. So or a snack, a dog barks. <laughs> exactly. <on> and, on. <laughs> and so we, we, you know, I think we're trying to kind of modify our view of what is acceptable professionally, because yeah. now we've had to, we've had to be more vulnerable, authentic and exposed. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you're having some of those conversations it's also okay to say, I don't know, I've never had that experience. Yeah. But but the 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 part where you have to just be open can be really exposing. Yeah. So what what kind of information or guidance do you provide to companies that are um let's just say not as overwhelmingly willing on their yeah on their diversity, inclusion, equity path. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, cause you know, I think there are times and people that are not really open to some of this work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, 
I don't think I mentioned this in talking about my story, but part of my journey here is I became an integral coach. So I went back to coaching school and studied coaching at New Ventures West, which is in San Francisco. And the word opening really makes me think about the model of coaching that we do, which is all about meeting people where they're at and they have to have an opening for there to be any movement, right? So if you meet someone who doesn't have an opening or you're working with someone or an organization that doesn't have an opening, if for some reason they're still talking to me, like there's something that makes them feel like they have to do some DEI work. Uh, so there's there's some glimmer in there, but my the way I like to approach it is to just try and create an experience that will build more opening. So exercises, frankly, around values or the experience of exclusion that don't feel super loaded with identity or race or gender, um, but can kind of help open the inclusion paradigm to more people those kinds of things can be helpful for creating more opening, but it's, it's tricky. You know, I think um, there has to be opening and for people to feel open, they have to feel safe. You know, if they're in an organization where you shouldn't be vulnerable, that's never going to mesh up. It's just never going to, never going to work. And then they have to frankly have some sense of well being in their life. So I think people that are under great duress right now, especially are really struggling this can be really wonderful because they're already open and processing some of these concepts can feel like a relief um, to have space for it. And to tell you the truth, that's what I find most. I find people are pretty hungry to have these conversations and they don't know how to do it. So they're so thankful to have just a structure where they can walk into it with some sense of openness and, you know, not total terror. Cause I think total terror comes up a lot for people. Especially at Thanksgiving or um, some yeah. holiday, right. With your own family, yeah. you find out things that you maybe didn't even know. Yeah. And I, I mean, all over, right. There's a bunch of stuff going on in my neighborhood right now about signs and, you know, the CCNRs and it's, it's complicated and people feel really attacked and under the gun. And I think just coming to things from a place of wanting to create belonging and inclusion without letting people off the hook. Like I don't, I want to be clear to say like, I'm not saying we'll just all hug and you can do whatever you want. (laughs) You know, there, there has to be some rigor to it, but if we want people to change and understand more, like I think the approach that I always feel works best um, is one of compassion, you know, to see the struggle in it for all of us and to meet people in a place of compassion to help move things forward. Well, and I think sometimes when you build on what you're talking about is really at the core of trying to connect commonality on a broader scale, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. not just about the diverse elements. It's really about us as human beings, right? Right, Um, And so being able to to kind of connect those dots in a way that allows us to understand each other and then really create some synergy and build off of those differences. Because we really, we can disagree. It's okay Mm -hmm. if I don't believe what you believe, Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't have to be yelling and screaming at each other or disrespecting each other because of that difference. Like, it, it should, you know, ideally right. the way politics should work, right, is right. that you right. have different views and then you guys come together and come up with an even better plan, right? Yeah. One of the things I use a ton in this work is really doing some some learning on listening and specifically what is empathic listening. Because 
when we listen to someone who has a different opinion than us is very rare. It is a skill to take that person's perspective as their truth, which is, you know, the core of empathic listening and not try and fix it or interrogate it or explain it or change it. And I mean, this is another example of something that, oh, hi, we're here to talk about empathic listening. It doesn't feel like we're talking about DEI, but we are. (laughs) Because if you don't have some ability to practice and get better at empathic listening, you can't have those respectful conversations that you're talking about. So they all, everything is one, you know, everything fits together. Well, that's why I always say diversity, equity, and inclusion is in everything you do. (laughs) So these conversations, it's like, to me, I love having the conversations because everywhere you look, you're actually having a conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. And you're absolutely. And you're either perpetuating systems of oppression or dismantling them, you know, and we find them. I mean, I know for me, I just, I, it's, it will be an endless journey. It's one of my favorite parts of Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, which, you know, she is, um, for me, she's been a really helpful teacher. And she says in that book that there is no end you know, you'll never stop unlearning systemic racism because it is so part of our country and our our experience. And that is, you know, kind of a bummer in some ways. You're like, oh, I kind of thought we could solve this thing. But it's also really freeing because it, it's, not an, it's not a race. It's not a hierarchy. It's not a where are you at versus me. It's just a, can we all keep walking forward? So I will always unpack something. I mean, I'm always finding things where I'm like, oh, huh, that's just some embodied systemic racism that I, you know, I see the world through that lens and here I, I found another place. Well, and I think what's interesting is we there's a, a lot of people even more recently that have really gotten into the depth of racism and the, the view of it that maybe they didn't realize that it was, it, it occurred that way or that people's experiences were a certain way. Um, And I think that can be, it can help connect allies to really say, you know, that's not appropriate. Like, why are you talking that way? Um, And I think it becomes really important for those allies to talk to each other. Absolutely. I mean, I think allies you know, white people, if you want to call it that, need to do their own work, which you hear a lot, and talk to each other, which can feel very confusing. Like I hear a lot of, I don't know what that means, but I had a wonderful place to start is just learning all the history we were not taught because it is revelatory. Like it is just mind blowing. And to be like, I was raised in this country. I was taught our history and wow, I wasn't taught it. You know, wow, I only heard an eighth of it. And it's hard to hear. And But it's you got to grapple. It's the reckoning. You know, we all have to take our... That's doing your own work is to do some work around the reckoning of the truth of what our history is. Yeah, that is great words. The truth <laughs> about our own reckoning. Lord knows yeah. that we need a lot of work there for sure. Um, and there are so many educators that are focused on, you know, kind of bringing new history, mm-hmm. I'll call yeah. it new history, history that hasn't been taught in the schools, into being so that our young people actually get a sense for yeah. all of those different elements. So I feel very hopeful about that piece. Like I watch, I have two late stage teenagers, an 18 and a 19 year old, and you know, their whole understanding and awareness is wildly different than mine was. And they're, 
their sensitivity to our history and their desire for making things right and a reckoning is is wildly different than my level of awareness was. And the other thing, and I think you were sort of noting this just in what people are ready for, the overnight, overnight change in what companies and organizations were willing to talk about this year. You know, I often would have to tap dance around the word racism, you know, or tap dance around privilege and not anymore. You know, it's just out there. So it's hard and people are grappling, but the opening is so much bigger to talk more truth. Yeah, we still, I still see people fighting the words, but. (laughs) I I do too. I mean, I don't want to, I sometimes come in and use the words and I say before, I'm going to use these words and then still people will be really upset. Well, why did you use those words? I'm like, well, because they are the words. They are what is happening and they're important words. And also I told you I would use (laughs) It exists. It exists. Let's own it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. So where do you see this profession moving? Because I think a lot of people will Mm -hmm. say, you know, there are things that work and work well, and then there are things that maybe don't work as well. And I think everyone I've ever talked to with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion, belonging, they all would love to see their jobs eliminated at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so where where do you see it going in terms of what we could do and where we can go? Yeah. Thinking about we're talking about the profession of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, diversity professionals. And I agree we would all love to see this be unnecessary. I also don't think that's gonna happen in my lifetime. Not to say I don't think we'll make progress. I do think we'll make progress. But building space for this is pretty pretty unique and pretty challenging and not something that um, just happens organically. So I think there will be this need. What I would love to see happen for the profession is that we talked before about how under-resourced people are. I would love to see it become an integrated function of any organization rather than a, we put our diversity folks up here on this side and they'll go fix that thing. So it's, it's what we've been talking about, right? It's all one. So it would be wonderful for diversity professionals not to have to start with that sort of cheer of recognizing and trying to get people and leaders to understand that it's all one. I'm hopeful that that will change. And so as it becomes all one, you know, diversity folks should be in top leadership positions in every room and every meeting. And that is really hard for some organizations to embrace. Um, that would be a wonderful next step towards it all being one. Absolutely. Well, those are great words to finish on. So I will just thank you so much, Jill Long, for joining me for this conversation this week. And I look forward to following you and your career and seeing the impact that you're making in the community. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing and I really appreciate your podcast and I've learned a lot listening to it. So thank you for being one of the great places of learning for me. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.